Hey, this is Heath Padgett, and welcome to the RV Entrepreneur Podcast, episode 210. The RV Entrepreneur is a podcast for nomadic entrepreneurs, and on today's episode, I'm interviewing Reet, who is the founder of Trip Outside, a marketplace in the outdoor industry for booking really cool adventures. <laughs> Today's episode was really interesting for me because there's a lot of overlap in what REIT is building with Trip Outside and my experience building campground booking. Ultimately, you're still working on effectively building what is a marketplace style of business where you have both consumers and people on the B2B business side. You have demand that you're trying to create and you have inventory that you're trying to source. And ultimately, these are a really challenging businesses to build, especially when you're going into them with limited resources like most startups have. In this episode, we talk about the pros and cons of bootstrapping versus raising capital and the problems that can come along with both, how to prioritize and what how to prioritize what to focus on as you scale a business, hiring and communicating with employees who may be working abroad, how to hire new employees that will stick around for the long haul, and ultimately what metrics are worth tracking. I really enjoyed diving into this interview with Reet, and one of the only things that I regret about this episode is that I didn't spend enough time or really any time getting to talk with Reet about another amazing company that he runs alongside his wife, Julie, called Seva Stray. This is a not a sponsored mention here, but it's just something I feel bad that we didn't get to dive into because it's such a cool mission. So if you're listening to this, I would really encourage you to go check them out. They're an e-commerce company with a really big vision. After visiting India and volunteering to adopt stray dogs, Reet and Julie decided to combine their love of dogs and their business knowledge. With Seva Stray, they sell beautiful, unique, ethically sourced vegan products and 20% of all their sales go towards organizations in India that take care of stray dogs. These donations go towards vaccinations, spaying and neutering programs, and medical care. And while we didn't get into talking about Seva Stray in this episode, if you have a chance, you should definitely go check out their website and see what they're doing because it's really cool. Before we get into today's episode, a quick word from our actual sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by ID Plans, and it's actually less of a sponsorship than it is really an opportunity. ID Plans is a software and service company based in Tampa, Florida, that provides solutions for property managers. Over the past 20 years, ID Plans has been able to hire a number of full-time RVers to help survey commercial properties, and they are looking to hire three to five additional teams over the next couple months. Here's a clip from Carolyn, who has been traveling with her husband across the country working with ID Plans. Me and my husband have been traveling full-time together since 2016. The whole time we've been on the road, we were always looking for a job to do something along the way to make some money, but still be able to have our freedom. We tried several different work camping positions and we realized that that was not a good way to make money. It was a great way to meet people, but the money was just not there. So we stumbled across ID Plans about a year and a half ago. And since we've worked for the company, it has changed our lives. We love working for ID Plans. We get to set our own schedule and we get paid to travel across the U.S. It's such a great opportunity. Over the last few years, I've seen a lot of companies hire RVers for different types of short and longer term jobs. And I can honestly say that this is one that almost immediately after getting trained, you can make a near full-time income while also still having another side hustle or business to do on the road. You'll receive training for their software, be able to park your RV right on the job sites and run the entire operation from your RV. If you wanna learn more, you can send an email to rvjobs at idplans.com. That is rvjobs at idplans.com. All right, let's get into today's episode with Reet. Reet, what's up, man? Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Heath. We're uh, long-term fans. As soon as we hit the road, we've been listening to your podcast. And even before that, Julie used your blog to really figure out the lifestyle. So you've been along, along on the journey the whole time. Hopefully it's been a, a good uh, a good example and not like, oh man, we shouldn't have hit the road three years ago. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I try not to blame you when everything goes wrong. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Uh, I'll take the credit and, and zero of the blame. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, so you guys are currently in Moab and you have a lot of different irons in the fire with Trip Outside and with the Seva Strait mission. Did I say that correctly? Yeah, Seva. Save a straight play mission. on the word like save a dog. Oh, I love it. I love it. Super straight, cool. But the word seva itself means uh, volunteering or giving back. It's a Punjabi word. Okay, cool. And um, yeah. I, I there's so many different kinds of 
ways that we could take our conversation. But I think maybe as a good starting point is when you meet somebody right now, um, you know, on the road or whatever, I don't know how many people you're meeting this year, but when you meet somebody new and you're talking to them and, and you share kind of your story um, and what you're, what you're up to now, how do you, how do you describe that? You know, the easiest way now that we've got our pitch down is to we have a couple of online businesses. Um, and then if they're more interested, we go into the specific businesses, but uh, I'm definitely most interested. of the time just, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we have a couple of online businesses. Uh, one is an outdoor gear rental and advent- adventure booking platform, a trip outside. And the other one is an e-commerce platform, which is Save Astray, where we sell products from India. Um, and when with every purchase, the goal was to, the reason we started this business was to help the straight dogs of India. And we give 20% of every single order uh, of the total to organizations that are helping the street dogs. That's awesome. What a great mission. And when you, so when you, you guys hit the road in 2017, and how did this whole lifestyle change come about? And what were you doing before that? Yeah, 2017, um, right around July 1st is when we hit the road. Before that, Julie and I were both um, buyers. We called them merchants at the Home Depot corporate office in Atlanta. Julie had been there for about 11 years. I worked there for about six years. We did not meet there. We met before. But we both had, you know, really amazing jobs at a really great company. It's, you know, massive company, over 350,000 employees. Wow. And, uh, you know, we had really great opportunities to learn, grow different in different types of roles from operations to finance and finally merchandising. But we traveled a lot. And every single weekend, we were either taking a camping trip or a biking trip, whether locally or um, sometimes internationally or different states. And, you know, whenever we would travel, uh, we wanted to, you know, the Sunday night blues where you're driving back, you're like, why do I have to go back to work tomorrow? I can just work from here. And eventually just started clicking, you know, while we were at work, that most of the meetings and most of everything that was happening could be done online. Uh, we could, we worked from a laptop all the time. Half the, we put in so many hours after work on our laptops on the weekends. And like, why can't we just do this all the time? And then, you know, you read a few books like for our work week or, uh, you know, see other people that are achieving the same success of being able to just take their, We love working. It was not to try to escape work, but being able to do it where we can maximize our outdoor time. And the biggest thing is we love doing these outdoor activities, and we did not want to wait till retirement to get outside and mountain bike even more or snowboard even more because who knows if we'll want to, we'll be able to live that long. (laughs) You know, all the factors. So we decided to just, we started having those conversations around 2015. Um, We wanted to save enough money. So in 2016, like mid 2016 came around, we were like, oh, not quite comfortable yet. Let's save for another six months, wait for a couple more bonuses to come in and then hit the hit the road. Nice. And, and when you thought about being out on the road, did you guys think we're going to start our own thing? Or were you thinking maybe you'll find a remote job? What was that thought process? Yeah, Trip Outside was already... Um, the catalyst behind it we knew that we wanted to start our own business and before this we probably had me probably i had like 50 different ideas of things i wanted to start and was almost too distracted until this you know trip outside came around we were just driving home one day and uh it really aligned with our experience and our um something we were going to love and not, didn't feel like, you know, it was going to be so far out of our um, experience that it would be a challenge. It just felt like we we're the right people to start this. If not us, then who? And that's when we decided to really, so like 2017, January, we started working on the concept, putting together requirements, talking to developers, different things. And uh, so we already had that in place before we hit the road. Got it. And so the idea was hit the road in the RV, spend lots of time in beautiful places like where you're at Moab, where you can go do lots of biking and outdoor adventures, and then build trip outside in conjunction with that. Was that kind of the vision? Yep, absolutely. And, you know, it worked out uh, really well because 
talking to the outfitters was crucial. So as, as a marketplace, you have you know two different set of customers. You have the B2B, which is the outfitters. And then you have to, you know, it's a big chicken of the egg supply demand uh, challenge. So you have to have enough outfitters on to make sure that customers have enough destinations and enough opportunities and uh, adventure, op- you know, uh, possibilities and all these destinations that they go to and have a big enough map. So we first focus on the B2B side, the outfitters. So we're going to go to these destinations. We would literally walk into the shop, schedule meetings, ask them what their pain points were, um, you know, really have uh, get an understanding of what is uh, what is the solution that they wanted, and actually, uh, we I'm so glad we did that because we got a lot of no's because of our initial builds that we were thinking about, which allowed us to pivot early on without spending a ton of investment into the business, and uh, we shifted more from providing a software to being a marketplace during that time, and that really helped us uh, early on, and I'm so glad that we you know, got that initial feedback before we just started building. Mm. So it's interesting. So you, you originally started thinking that you're going to build kind of a booking rental platform for outfitters. So basically if I had a bike shop here in Colorado and I wanted to rent out the bikes, you'd be kind of the back end software that would help me provide the rentals. Was that the original idea? Yeah, absolutely. We just thought that was the problem that there's just not enough, enough solutions out there or, um, you know, we, we thought the technology was the, the gap, right? But it turned out that there's amazing technology out there, really affordable. Um, and the outfitters that want to be online and really want to be, um, you know, using a booking platform were using them. And we didn't want to take that part of the market and not include them in our opportunity for the users to be able to book with them. So we didn't want to create a system where only the outfitters using our platform would be able to, uh, would be the ones available for, to be rent or do a tour on trip outside. We wanted everyone to be on there. So, and that's where, if you don't, we pivoted that, okay, fine. If you don't have any software and you don't want anything, we can still get you leads. We can still get you bookings. And that's where we built our home built solution that we were already working towards. But it's, we decided to make that very limited. Um, so only when it's needed, we have a great option. And outfitters that use it, they absolutely love it because it's light technology. It's not overwhelming. And the outfitters that do have software that do want to grow, we can just simply integrate with them. Oh, got it. That makes that makes a lot of sense. And we kind of realized the complete opposite with campground booking when we were getting started. We were going out talking with campgrounds, and there wasn't actually a decent amount of legit technology that was being used by parks. There were a couple of providers, but there were still so many parks that had either outdated or completely offline processes. And so we kind of went the the, the build the premium full end, you know, like crazy in-depth SaaS solution. So it's always kind of fun to hear different sides of that equation. So going the marketplace route, you effectively then are basically driving a marketing engine. So when you go to your website now on Trip Outside, you can book biking adventures, skiing adventures, canoe adventures, a lot of different really cool trips. Um, and, And effectively, you are bringing that inventory to the platform through integrations with those existing systems correct? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a lot of research time on the user. You know, when you're taking a trip, you're like, okay, who rents? Where are they? Where's the trailhead? Uh, what type of bikes do they carry? Do they have kids' bikes? Do they have adult bikes? I want a road bike or instead of a cruiser. And on the ski trip, uh, you know, there's so many overwhelming options. What are all the different prices? So our goal is to, one, just really help that user cut down that research time so even if an outfitter wasn't signed up with us, we still, uh, you know, we did the research, we still pulled their information, what they read, and display it for the user so they can make the, make the best decision and really help them. Uh, and that has been, it's just been nice to be able to help the user, even if we're not making money at this point with that information. Um, it was really rewarding because we saw instant uh, reward from that strategy. And, you know, through that, once we have enough of those destinations, we do outreach to get these outfitters to sign up because now we already know, hey, I'm already getting a lot of traffic to this page. We have, uh, you know, one outfitter that's getting a ton of bookings. Would you also like to get bookings? It's, you know, we can justify 
and show them data. And it makes the sales a little bit easier as well. Yeah. And one of the things I've noticed is that it's, it's really challenging uh, to be a SaaS provider and have that mentality and also be able to switch and put on the marketplace hat. Like I don't like talking with other founders who have done that successfully. It seems it's few and far in between. Most of the time, a lot of companies, unless you've raised a lot of money or built a really big team, you're either kind of having to focus on the demand side or you're focused on the SaaS side and, and they can go together. And sometimes they do. Um, you know, I think a good example of that is Wheelbase and Outdoorsy, who has built a really great SaaS business and moved that into the inventory on the marketplace side. But how has it been for you thinking through creating a lightweight product or driving marketplace? Because they're two different kinds of focus. Have you struggled with that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, even just, you know, time investment and uh, making sure that you're Initially, for example, like we were just focused on the B2B side for probably a year and a half. We weren't even thinking about the customer yet because there's no customer unless you have supply and buy-in. But eventually that transition, you know, we had to start thinking about, okay, what are all the things that the user wants out of this? It's not about what we think they want. It's just online booking, but maybe that's not enough of a problem. So uh, what what we constantly focus on is value. And that overlap between the outfitter and the user, and sometimes it's different. Like the user may not care for a lot of things that the outfitter wants to offer. Maybe they want to offer, maybe they want uh, a completely different thing that has nothing to do with trip outside, but or their online booking. But it may have something to do with finding trail information. So it doesn't have anything to do with the outfitter necessarily, but it's information that the outfitter that the customer wants. So trailforks.com is another or MTB project or single tracks, there's really great, like this is an example for mountain biking, content websites that provide that information. So we did um, we did some customer uh, feedback. We would hang out, Moab actually was another one of those places that we did that. We hung out at the end of the trailhead before you could do this last year. And we had trail parties where we would like bring in sunscreen, water, snacks, you know, beer and food and just talk to users that were finishing their ride in Moab and just say, you know, talk to them about trip outside and ask them what are their biggest pain points when they're booking online travel. Um, We did this for four days and got, you know, a ton of feedback. We took that, prioritized it. And when we implemented those changes that were for the user, we definitely saw better conversion. Uh, We are constantly looking to do that. Now we're trying to do that through online chat and different channels, but talking to customers and talking to offers constantly is probably what's working for us. And, you know, always listening, always um, keep it in mind, not just constantly changing your, your strategy or the platform, but maybe thinking a little bit bigger. Um, For example, like one of the challenges right now is outfitters could have too much business because COVID happened or they don't have enough inventory. So they would like more customers, but they can't get more customers because they just don't have enough bikes. They sold them all because coronavirus started and they needed to pay their bills and supply chain was super restricted and they just couldn't get more. So during that time, we're thinking about how can we still offer value to these outfitters if it's not bookings, but not completely shift our whole uh, business around it but still continue to offer them value and still be good partners. But I guess uh, a long-winded answer is just listening to both sides, the supply and the demand, and constantly building that that platform that provides value to both sides. I think that is a challenge, and it's it's sometimes a moving target. And by sport, by activity, it's different, but that's what we try to focus on. And uh, it seems to be working, but we just have to do more of that. Yeah, that makes sense. One of the uh, good voices in my ear lately has been Dennis, who is one of our recent team members. And I have had a lot of these types of conversations with him where we're going back and forth. And there's a there's a feature that really plays in more like a marketplace. And, you know, I, I kind of I get hesitant because I'm like, oh, that is that going to distract from our core focus, which is on the B2B side right now. And and he says, what does it matter if it is going to provide more value for both sides? Because like it or not, we've realized as we've got pockets of inventory and areas, we've actually started driving more meaningful demand with zero 
additional effort. Uh, like this summer, we had 800,000 page views in a pocket region um, where we have a lot of parks. And I didn't even realize that until a couple of weeks ago because I'm measuring none of the marketplace metrics right now. And maybe that's a bad sure. thing, but it's, it's just a totally different focus. If someone's thinking about building a marketplace, now they're becoming more uh, more plug and play in some regards. Like you don't have to actually go develop and build out. You can go through, I think there's a platform called Share Tribe. You can go and you can sign up and kind of build a lightweight version to test out a marketplace. What do you feel is the minimum amount of inventory that you need before you can go out and market to consumers and say, we're, we're a booking site for outdoor adventures, if that makes sense. Did you feel there was a minimum number or uh, within a region or something like that that you needed to have before you could really tell people, yeah, come here and book? Sure. I think, um, yeah, like you said, the technology is so far along now. And, you know, even in the past three or four years, um, I would focus, I would say it's more important to have one focus and like one niche or one destination really solve for it and then expand to new places. So, um, you know, for skiing, for example, we wanted to make sure that we have the top ski resorts and we're still probably missing some and just that. So just ski rental and, you know, like just take a look at just top 10 resorts and figure out what's working there before we just try to add skiing, snowboarding, snowshoeing, uh, you know, all the winter sports and all the summer sports and all over the country. That's a little bit challenging. Um, and I think the data could also be like misleading sometimes. So what I would say is focus, even though your grand visions might be really big and this is still something that we're going through. So it's, you know, three years later, we're still constantly trying to just focus on which activity is it that we really want to feature and get right. And then, which destinations do we need to feature and get them, get them, you know, perfectly, um, get the most value and the most user feedback and then go fast. So I would say just, you know, hyper-focus on a few activities or if you're focused on, you know, finding the best dentists that do X, Y, Z, you know, maybe start with a city, um, and then expand to other places. And then maybe you can expand to other uh, services as well you know rv repair would be an amazing one if somebody starts it please reach out to me because i would love to help <laughs> yeah i actually i'm gonna put it i'm gonna put it out there right now on the podcast but one of the things i've thought about a lot is a peer-to-peer -peer rv repair marketplace because there's so many great mobile technicians out there and there's not a great way for them to be centralized especially if they're moving around the country so I, I thought about that a lot and I think that would go over gangbusters because service is so broken. I know that's a whole tangent absolutely. we can go down. So I think yeah, we should put absolutely. it out there in this episode. Somebody needs to build this and get started working on it right now because I think it, it would just crush. <laughs> yes, reach out to Heath and reach out to me and we'll, we'll all try to get you to do it because we need, the, we need this all the time. Absolutely. What's been the most challenging part so far of building the marketplace? Uh, you know, we've bootstrapped the whole thing. So that's really, it's, it's, we're really proud of it, about how far we've been able to come without any outside investment. Um, that's really exciting. But at the same time, you know, we just want to go a lot faster sometimes. So now we are looking at raising capital. So we're in that process right now. I think the hardest thing in the past was, you know, being on the road, you're, it's just Julie and I were bouncing ideas for, uh, we didn't have a strong like mentor network or entrepreneur network until this year where we could really, you know, phone a friend all the time and, uh, you know, get feedback on our ideas, helping us prioritize focus and get that external input. Um, I think that was challenging being on the road, but, you know, now everyone is getting the value of jumping on a Zoom call, whether it's 15 or 30 minutes and just getting uh, quick advice or just bouncing ideas off. Uh, but, you know, we're working through it. I think the second thing is, for, this is more for me personally, is laser focus and priorities. And sometimes I want to do everything that I feel like I can solve a problem on, but it just has to wait. You know, just prioritizing and putting it on a list because there's so many great ideas out there and either finding a way to 
incorporate that into your existing idea or business uh, instead of maybe starting this from scratch and starting something new or just waiting on it and see if it's still there a few months later and still nagging you to do something about it and then you should do something for me. But that was the challenge is, you know, I was chasing too many different uh, concept ideas and trying to implement them all at the same time. Mm, that makes total sense. And I don't know if it's like this with you, but I mean, we bootstrapped campground booking for years. And then this year we took on um, a 500K round of funding this summer. And it, I, I, I resonate with both those things so much because it's, pain, it's been painful how slow we've, I felt we've had to move. Uh, and, and at times I'm just, I want to get this done. I want to move. I want to do this. And it's just a process to, to get that. And then, but I also felt for me that it drove some of that natural entrepreneurial chase the bouncing ball distraction because I would wake up and feel like I needed to keep diversifying revenue streams and projects and things like that because I wasn't fully in the, I was in it and I was working hard on it. But at the same time, because there was no pressure to move quickly and fast, it made me feel like I needed to continue diversifying revenue streams until mm. one came. And I felt that contributed to some of that anxiety and stress. And I don't know if it's been like that for you, but I have felt even just with taking this round of funding on, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a different pressure in a new way. It's like the clock's ticking runway and we've got 10 full-time employees now and that's scary. And I had to figure out healthcare and do all this other stuff. But at the same yeah. time, when I wake up, I know what I'm working on today. And I know that what my priorities are and I know what our OKRs are for the business. And, and, and if it, if it fails, it, it failed with a full-time effort and focus versus kind of me feeling like I need to get up and, you know, do 20 things that day. I don't know if that's been similar for you, but it sounds like that might be something that other founders who bootstrap struggle with. You nailed it. I think that's, that's so interesting. Um, you know, I think it's uncomfortable because you're working on something for, you know, well over a year sometimes and you're not seeing, I think it's a patience game too. And it's uncomfortable and you feel like you're doing something wrong and maybe you just need to completely change the model instead of just like believing in it, hanging in there and just doing more of what's working instead of just, you know, chasing new revenue streams, for example. But, um, yeah, I think when you have that external funding, you, you make promises like, hey, this is what we're going to go do. Because it, one, forces you, I think, to have that vision and have, like, where are you going to spend the money? And through that process, it gives you some clarity and then accountability. So you have to go do it. That's really interesting that you're finding value in, in that investment. Yeah, and like I said, I mean, I think we, one of the frames of mind that I've, had the past couple of years and I read it, the subtle art of not giving an F if you've ever read that book or heard of it, but it's like, we pick our problems that we have. And for a while I picked the problems of under-resourced, hyper-stressed, not paying myself as a founder and feeling really spread thin. And now I've picked a different problem and pain point, which is there's a ticking clock and people who have betted on me to give them a return for their money. And we need to make sure that we do everything in our power to make that happen. So it's, it's a different season, you know, like, yeah. but, but it's, um, it's been interesting to kind of go through that process. So anyway, I don't want to spend too much time talking, uh, going into my thing, but I, I, those have been really helpful. Um, I love hearing about it. So keep going. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure your audience does too. So, so so whenever, so when you starting, when you guys started Trip Outside, uh, I know you said you were looking for developers and you bootstrapped it. How did you fund the early days of the company? Did you guys take savings? Um, did you learn how to develop some yourself? What was that like? All savings. And, awesome. um, you know, we initially uh, started getting quotes from U.S. development companies and you know, it was like 50,000, 75,000, 100,000. And we're so lucky and glad that we didn't say yes and go for it because we would have built the complete wrong thing. Depleted, you know, like more than a third of our savings in, in just building the thing without having any customers, without having any feedback. So, and maybe it would have been different because maybe some of these development companies would have helped us um, focus and strategize. So, uh, we decided I was going back to, I'm from a born and raised in India. So I was always going back to India. I just know they have a ton of development 
uh, expertise and but there's not as much of the communication and um, like project management that comes with it. So we had to kind of really focus on that ourselves, but we were able to, we went through many different uh, development companies. We actually walked into offices of development companies and have meetings with them. <laughs> and they were not expecting it in India. We would walk into this little like rundown building and there's a team of developers sitting back there and we would have meetings and work on it. And that was super fun. Uh, but it helped us reduce a lot of our costs and build, uh, in, you know, sustain and keep going and not run out of money in the first couple of years. So, but a lot of lessons learned there. We went through probably four, four, four developers before, you know, sometimes speed is lacking, sometimes communication, not to anybody's fault. It's just you learn along the way of what you're looking for because uh, their skill could be amazing, but if you can't communicate, back and forth or if it's not timely that it's you know it gets really frustrating really fast is so is the communication more along the lines of them not being able to communicate through different platforms like slack or email effectively or is it language a little bit of the the tools of just not keeping it updated um second thing is just culturally indians we have a tendency to over commit under deliver because we can't say we don't want to say no to something sometimes so that was a little bit of the challenge where they're like yep yep we can do this we can do this but then when it came down to doing it it would take either much longer or uh, not taking the time to fully understand the scope of things early on is something we learned that um, you know it's just as much on us and we're learning to communicate better about, okay, specifically, this is what we need and by when. Um, and being upfront, like whether that's possible or not. And if it's not possible, like really pulling that out of the developer and like, okay, give us other options because the option two or option three might be just fine for now. Like we don't need, you know, sometimes the other person or the other party's thinking that you need to build something massive where we just want to test a concept with a few outfitters or a few customers and see if it's worth it and then fuel more of it, you know, doing a minimal viable product of that functionality or feature. So it wasn't as much language um, because if it comes down to it, I can't speak Hindi and Punjabi, but that wasn't ever a challenge. English is really like a main language. We did try developers in um, Eastern Europe as well. And that went really well. It was just going to cost too much to keep going. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So you said that when you went to US-based development companies that some of the quotes around them were fifty to $75,000 to maybe build out that initial application. What did you end up spending to get to a minimum viable product? And I guess I would define minimum viable as, you know, your first 50 bookable listings on trip outside. Do you know, do you have an idea of what that actually costs? I just think sometimes it's helpful to know if someone's thinking of developing an application from scratch and not going with an off the shelf solution, how, what could that be done for? Sure. I think, you know, that's a great question because I, I want people to understand, like if you're in your job or you want to start something from the side, uh, don't let the concept of like spending a bunch of money to get you from starting something, you know, sometimes overthinking can re lead to underachieving, but you know, if you just want to test your concept, you mentioned share tribe, uh, it's like 150 bucks a month, or I think they might even have cheaper plans with that, you know, start that and just see how it goes, do it for five months and then figure out whatever your limitations are and write down all those limitations that might be coming out. And that becomes your requirements document that you want to eventually build off of and when you want your custom solution. Uh, you know, for us, we wasted like our first $5,000 because it just didn't uh, pan out. The developer never finished and we restarted. But, you know, the first, uh, what was it, 50 destinations or 100, we probably got to it with like $20,000, nice. not including like the marketing or anything, just, yeah, just the development. If you were thinking about hiring somebody from India or Eastern Europe or somebody or a different country where maybe the developers have a different rate per hour as kind of a standard thing, what have been the best websites and resources for you to go find talent? Sure. Yeah. Upwork has definitely uh, been really helpful, but 
Um, I think there's new ones, Codable, I believe is another one, um, that have more specific, like if you're just looking for WordPress people, there's some marketplaces for that. And maybe I'll follow up with an email with you and you can put it in the show notes or something. But Upwork is definitely good. Fiverr, I don't know for development, but for like creating an easy logo and just uh, getting a lot of tasks done, creating a video or marketing a video, Fiverr is really great for that because you can just like pick the style that you want and add it to cart and pay for it. And you pretty much know what to expect. And, you know, we still love me, you know, talking to the experts that are us based and we do more consulting with them. We, you know, we'll pay for a few hours of their expert time, make sure we're on the right track and then use either our own hours to implement some of those things or, um, task those out for to some of the freelancers with very clear details. No, that makes a lot of sense. Awesome. Those are, I think those will be really good. And one other thing around that topic before we kind of move on to, to something else is what, what tips would you give for people who are thinking about using a site like Upwork and finding a developer? Since you kind of went through, it sounds like a few different developers before you found somebody who worked. If you could go back and do it again, or when you do hire another developer, what are the things that you now look for in, you know, finding and sourcing the best people, or is it kind of just carving out early projects or what does that look like? That's a great, that's a great, great question because we struggled with that for a long time and, you know, we still haven't totally dialed in, but what we try to do now is suppose we're looking for a content writer. We will hire three instead of one and give them all very similar tasks and see who comes back with the best effort and still keep paying all three through, you know, multiple revisions or multiple, um, content articles for a few months, possibly, you know, you'll find out early on who's meeting deadlines, who's meeting, who do you like communicating with better? Like who just really gets your business and like spends a little bit of effort, extra effort, uh, and then really investing more in that person. So, um, on the development side, maybe, you know, you can get like those requirements to three different people, but before you start the project, you know, start smaller projects instead of like giving the massive thing to one person, you know, maybe you could just have them create a landing page or one little small feature that you're thinking about instead of the entire app or the entire platform. That would be one advice I would give is just, you know, try a lot of people. There's, it's not going to work out for many reasons. Want, you know, it could be budget, it could be speed, could be more important uh, versus like quality of work. You know, you could have a lot of bugs with one person, even though it looks really pretty on the front end. So try a bunch of small projects. We're uh, glad we went through many different developers in the past because the person that we have now, we absolutely love working with. It's such a peace of mind when you find that right person and we knock on wood and we hope we you know, keep them um, happy and then constantly working getting feedback from them too about how we could improve so like are the times working out or you know we want to make sure we're mindful of being good clients so if it's uh, a call that is inconvenient for us like if we have to wake up at seven o'clock in the morning and take a call just so they can not have to stay up till midnight we're happy to do that so if we do go outsource you know time changes and some of those things if you're a great client i think they want to work with you better and it's in everyone's best interest. Yeah, no, absolutely. That makes sense. Those are really good piece of advice. Shifting gears a little bit, thinking about kind of building trip outside as a whole from scratch as you guys have been on the road. How have you approached Runway? As a bootstrapped company, you have less expenses because you didn't go out and hire a ton of people and you found good developers at lower cost to get started. But how have you like, and, and also I think, one thing to note is a lot of people I've had on this podcast are more have a lot more service-based business. I would say it's probably been 80% service-based, 20% product or technology focused. And the sure. technology obviously takes a lot longer to build. I mean, you could spin up and say, I'm a marketing consultant tomorrow and have services that charge a couple grand a month. But building a product that is going to you know, be a SaaS or a marketplace, takes it just takes longer. So how have you approached your runway, both from a financial and just from a emotional perspective and, you know, like not getting burned out and things like that. Uh, man, meditation has helped a lot. Uh, outdoor activities help a lot. You know, it's not easy. It's not easy taking, um, 
a really great income and going to zero. And like you said, you know, you're building something for the future and being at zero for a very long time. And it's uncomfortable. Um, but one thing, one thing that really helps is, and this is just advice, like sometimes something I wish we would have implemented sooner, even when we're making great money uh, in our jobs, it's just finding things. And this may not be perfectly related to your answer, but one, it's just difficult and you just have to hang in there. Uh, and two, you know, you still have to do things that you love. Like you can't, uh, you can't keep comparing to our older lifestyle. So you got to find things that you love that don't cost as much money. Example, hiking or going out for a kayaking paddle. You can spend four hours in an amazing hike, come back, cook your own food, and you literally didn't spend any money, but you had a great experience. You had a great day. Uh, so breaking some of our older routines of thinking that only going out to eat and going out for drinks and going out to a concert is the only way I'm going to enjoy my life and get happiness and contentment out of it. Uh, and, you know, we're going through a difficult time now as a country. There's a lot of people that don't have jobs. A lot of people are going, it's going to be a tough few uh, months and hopefully not longer. But if you can find, you know, you guys still got to get through, you still have to be happy and content. But if you can find things that bring you contentment and joy that aren't over-marketed in your Super Bowl ads and TV and digital media, uh, there's a lot of things that are amazing and free that you can still enjoy your life. You can still be content. You don't have to live out of an RV, but that's one hack for us. And, you know, that's a lot of people are trying that. Um, but yeah, just, you know, you got to do the work. You got, you may not have money coming in for a long time, but that doesn't mean you have to suffer. So during those hard times, you know, try to meditate a lot and then, you know, do outdoor activities. Sometimes just pent up energy when we, go work out or go get an exercise in, it really helps reduce the stress and go back to work. I love Hopefully that. Hopefully that helps like what you were trying to do. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. I, I mean, a lot of people, when they think about runway focus, just on the financial side, but I think especially bootstrapping and if you're an entrepreneur and you tend to work a lot, like a default is that's for me. If you're not doing those things that give you energy and make you really happy, it, you're just as likely to run out of the emotional runway as you are the financial runway, uh, I think. So think a little shifting gears a little bit, but for the financial runway side, for you guys, the trip outside is a little bit more practical. But what kind of metrics or barometers did you set in place for you guys building this company from the road? It's your full-time focus. Um, well, I know you have a couple things, so maybe it's not your full time, but 75% focus. What kind of metrics have you set in place that you're like, I need to hit this in order to keep going? Did you have those? And how have you kind of approached that whole, the uh, financial runway side? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the number of outfitters was the number one first is we wanted to make sure that we have enough outfitters. So before it was first year, it was a hundred. Uh, then it was you know, after, for 2020, our goal is 500, uh, or it was 200 new destinations, which averages out to about 500 outfitters. And then 20, by 2022, we want to have 1,000 outfitters. And with that, you know, it, we automatically uh, back into destinations and traffic. Then the second thing is traffic, making sure that we have relevant traffic come to the site in those destinations so those outfitters are getting bookings. Um, and then we have a couple of premium plan. We have a premium plan and a standard plan. So one of the metric is we're tracking is to make sure that we can offer a lot more value in that premium plan. So we can upsell our existing outfitters, and new outfitters. Um, so a percent, having a percent of those outfitters on the premium plan is one of the metrics, but, um, that's really, it's important. It's important to know like where you're going. And I think the number of outfitters and destinations is an easy way for us to kind of keep charging ahead year after year. But there's a ton of other metrics that we're looking at, just conversion rate, bounce rate. How do we, uh, if we're getting a lot of traffic to that page, but people are not booking, how do we, what are some of the things that we need to offer to make sure that they convert and use trip outside instead of either going directly or waiting to do it later. So we're implementing best practices from other marketplaces that have really, you know, figured out those problems and have solutions for them but also talking to outfitters to see like, how do we just end up giving more and more value to them so we can have great partners, but they want people to book through us and think of us as great partners. 
because there's a lot of marketplaces that, um, you know, the business owners don't really like or love, but they're stuck with them because they dominate the industry. But we just don't want to be one of those. Yeah, looking at the, have you ever read any articles on Skift? I have not, but I'm going to okay. write that down. It's, it's a really interesting uh, travel media company. So they've done all these interesting case studies of the original online travel agencies like Kayak and Expedia. And there's one I really like. It's probably a, it's like a 45 minute read blog, but it's called the, the history of online travel agencies. And, you know, you kind of understand the foundation of all these companies that were built in the travel space. And when they first started out, they started out as a value add to, Hey, we're going to bring you traffic. We're going to bring you extra reservations. We're like the phone book, the yellow book pages or whatever they were called, but you know, we're online. And then over time they own all of the consumer traffic and then they start jacking up rates and they start kind of, um, you know, undercutting the hotels or what, whatever. And, and then you're kind of at their becking call, like you said, because they own so much of the atten- the consumer attention and yeah. over time now it started, it almost seems like the pendulum has swung the other way a little bit where there's like a lot of emphasis on book direct, but if you're not doing that, then I can understand the importance of being able to build good relationships so that they see you as a true partner and not as somebody who's trying to take their business, but help them. Yeah, I'm a, it's, I think it helps. My brother owns a hotel. I worked there for a little while. Um, it's good to always always bounce things off of him and uh, see how different marketplaces he works with and who he likes, who he doesn't like, and why. So I use some of that information to make sure I always think a point, think of things from my brother's point of view and the small businesses' point of view that uh, they've got to make money too. We're all in it together because if they're not making money and we're not, you know, we all have to, there's enough space and abundance out there where we can all do well. And it doesn't necessarily has to come, it doesn't have to come from the expense of one party doing better than the other. You know, that's, that's where that value generation really plays a crucial part. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I feel we could go on and on and talk through the marketplace side of things so much more, but I want to be thoughtful of of time. I just have a couple kind of rapid fire questions for you. Uh, What's your favorite campsite that you guys have stayed in the past year? Past year, you know, we just left one. Um, Flaming Gorge, Utah. That was really incredible. Mostly because we had never heard of it. And it's one of those, you know, the spontaneous trips always end up being the most fun ones where it's unexpected beauty. There was uh, a reservoir, there's paddling, there's mountain biking close by. We saw, uh, we saw antelope migration happening, the fastest land animal in the U.S. And it was incredible. I feel like you're in the middle of Africa. You know, the more untouched beauty there is, the better. So that was definitely one that sticks out. I love it. What's the best book you've read this year? Sapiens. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't read that one, but I've seen it mentioned a lot of places. Hang in there, dude. It's a long read and so much detail. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What, what do you feel like if you were sitting down at the end of this year and it's kind of an unfair question this year, but that's why it's fun to ask. And you're kind of recapping the year and your key lessons or takeaways for that year. What would one of those be? Um, community is important. Uh, I think we're all learning that this year, but just knowing it's so nice to know that we always have people we can call, even if we're not physically in touch with them. Um, they're always there. Um, mentors, like the value of mentorship and feedback and putting emphasis on that this year, it's been really great. We were part of a generator uh, pro, uh, um, accelerator program that really opened our eyes into, uh, you know, we've had people that are scheduling weekly calls with us just to be able to help us and they want nothing out of it. It's incredible. Um, so that we're really thankful for and really grateful for the community, online community, being able to uh, reach out. And I think the success at the end of the year would look like if we continue to listen to all those people and keep them updated on our success and, you know, just keep going. Uh, it's going to be, uh, it's, it's, I believe it's, there's no finish line in any of this. I think that's what I try to remind myself. It's just 
just get up, do the work. Is you know, it's always going to be challenges. There's always going to be struggles. Whether you're making zero money or five million dollars a month, you know, there's going to be the feeling of the struggle, the feeling of the challenge is always going to be there. So just got to keep going. Absolutely, I love it so much, Reed. Uh, where's a good place for people to connect with you guys online? Yeah, tripoutside.com. We have a little chat on there. It goes directly to me for a while, as soon as long as I can handle it. Um, and save us tray, S-E-V-A, save us trade.com for products for Indian stuff. And the Instagrams are all on this page. Uh, that'd be a great place to connect. And I would love to hear from you if just chat bot and say hi and let me know uh, who you are, if I can, if we can help plan a trip for you. One thing I do want to leave uh, that I would love to add if I can. Absolutely. Is, you know, we are, the nature provides so much value to us that getting outside, even if it's for a few minutes a day, 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes a day, really adds so much value. It doesn't have to be an epic mountain bike ride or a kayak trip that's overplanned, just doing something outside. And appreciating clean air, clean water, nature, wildlife. And if we don't, uh, our mission is if we don't appreciate it, we will never work towards protecting it. So when that petition comes up that is going to ruin uh, you know, oil drilling is going to ruin some wilderness in the area. It doesn't mean anything if you don't understand that area. So please take some time to get outside, appreciate nature. This is the one resource that we have that I'd love to pass on to future generations that Julie and I fight towards. And that's why we're trying to create Trip Outside. And we're making sure that we do this responsibly, where people go through outfitters, understand the area, know what's know what impact there is to... Like in Moab, there's soil that if you step on it, it's going to be gone for 100 years. I don't know if we're going to be around for 100 years, but maybe we could all work together to, towards preserving some of these amazing outdoor places that we all love. I love it. What a great message to end on, Reed. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your story, man. Hey, thanks for having us on. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to today's episode with Reet. If you enjoy listening to the RV Entrepreneur Podcast and you've never left a review on iTunes or Overcast or wherever you listen to this podcast, it would mean the world if you took a second and went and left an honest review. Those are really kind of the lifeblood of podcasts. Whenever somebody's trying to decide if they want to go listen to a show, they go check out reviews and ultimately that's how they decide if they're going to listen to episode one or episode 210. Anyway, if you have less review, I appreciate you so much. Thank you for listening to this podcast and I'll see you guys next time on the RV Entrepreneur.